Welcome to this, the first in a series of MO forums. Uh, we had the idea of inviting people on Twitter and also on Facebook to submit questions, and I want to thank everyone for a very large number of questions that have been submitted. I've needed to um, pick some of those out and distill uh, into a single question the thoughts of very many people uh, on particular issues. So if you don't recognise your question, uh, I hope that at least you'll recognise that the topic that you've raised is addressed in my answers. So let's get on with it. Uh, the first question is, what's your favourite quote and why does it resonate with you? The answer to that is uh, the uh, speech that Martin Luther King made when he said, uh, I had a dream uh, that my four little children would grow up in a world where they are judged not by the colour of their skin but by the content of their character. Uh, this was during the human rights movement uh, of the 1960s and it really talked about uh, not discriminating against people on the basis of colour, of religion or any other uh, aspect of their features, but that everyone should be treated equally and be given an opportunity in life. And I've always believed that uh, is the case and that has been my motivation all through my public life. The next question is, can Labor ever be the party the left want it to be on social issues such as gay marriage? Why so difficult? Well, the truth is the Labor Party does cover a pretty broad spectrum, but it is a spectrum very much on, in the middle and through progressive uh, thinking. Now, that spectrum isn't covered by the far right. We leave that to the coalition. Uh, nor is it really covered by uh, the Greens. In fact, Labor often, if not always, competes with the Greens. Uh, they are able to articulate policies on the basis of trying to get perhaps 10% of the Australian people agreeing with them, which is a pretty good result if you want to get in the Senate. Uh, we have a responsibility to the working people of Australia to get elected and to implement great Labor reforms, which we've done in the past, such as Medicare, uh, superannuation for all working people, uh, more recently the National Disability Insurance Scheme and the Great Education Reform sponsored by Julia Gillard. We would not be able to do that if we were a party that represented just one slice of the political spectrum in our country. The next question is, can I go into detail about my endorsement of ALBO? I think everyone watching knows that ALBO is Anthony Albanese and he and Bill Shorten are in a contest uh, for the leadership of the Labor Party, the position of leader of the opposition. Uh, this is a great thing, and uh, it's been marked by civility between Albo and Bill, and for the first time it is formally engaging the rank-and-file membership of the Labor Party. That's terrific. Uh, why Albo? They're both good candidates, but Albo, in my experience, has been a very, very strong advocate for Labor, uh, he's always been there when the whips were cracking, when times were tough, when the whistle blows and you need to go over the trenches. Uh, I often did go over the top of the trenches and right beside me was Albo. And so what we can be sure about Albo, he'll always stick to Labor values uh, and he'll always fight the good fight in preserving the legacy of the Labor government. And I think that's very important. Bill 2 is a great candidate. Uh, but you only get to pick one, and uh, I've been asked who I support, and I support Albo. On to the next question, 
There's a few along these lines. Uh, Wyala Wipeout is becoming a cult classic. Which protest song is your favourite and what's your next cover? Uh, well, I'm not sure about cult classic. Uh, it, probably only in Australia that you can get ahead by singing badly, or at, not, or at least not very well. You see people on The Boys, wonderful talents and uh, these other talent shows, uh, and you know they are fantastic people. Uh, but only in Australia could someone who doesn't sing particularly well but has a go actually make a bit of a mark culturally within our, our country, if you could, in fact, call it culture. Um, in terms of uh, protest songs, uh, Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind is a song that uh, I've always been very, very fond of, and I urge you to have a look at the words uh, for that. They're really born in a similar period to the times of Martin Luther King. Uh, and... There's another song by a fellow called Thunderclap Newman called Something in the Air. I don't think that Thunderclap really had a lot of hits. It probably does fall into the category of one-hit wonders, but it talks about revolution too. Now, for the more conservative of you, having uh, Emma talk about revolutions might seem a bit scary, but they're all different types of revolutions. Uh, we have been implementing an education revolution, and I think that's a great thing for equality of opportunity in the future. So I'd urge you to have a look at those uh, 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 songs and play them on YouTube. In terms of going on tour, uh, we're in intense negotiations uh, on a contract with the ABC. Uh, we want a contract and the ABC doesn't want to give us one. And I think the ABC is going to win that debate. Right, moving right along. Uh, will I humiliate myself by singing Why Allah Wipeout at uh, this person's um, cantina's 18th birthday, and it's a serious question, she says. I've humiliated myself uh, before, uh, but all in good fun. I'm not sure that I'll get to your 18th birthday, but anyway, it's, uh, again, I think a celebration of our Australian community that you can have a little bit of fun at your own expense. I'm asked if the carbon pricing mechanism that is in place is removed, what impact will that have on foreign investment and reputation? There are some significant issues here. Uh, Labor should continue to oppose the removal of the carbon pricing mechanism. This is an emissions trading scheme. It's a market-based mechanism. It was first uh, designed um, by John Howard. Uh, it's fully supported by Malcolm Turnbull. It has been supported in the past by Tony Abbott, but for political reasons, he thought he could get some votes out of saying that they're going to get rid of it, uh, I think that will be a tragedy for Australia. Uh, we do need to address climate change. A market-based mechanism is the right way of going, chopping and changing, uh, and potentially, potentially um, not honouring contracts would be a very severe blow to our standing in terms of sovereign risk. So amongst many reasons, uh, uh, the sovereign risk argument is one that I think should be considered uh, and that is comes into our consideration when I'm confident that whoever leads the opposition will oppose any removal of the emissions trading scheme that has been supported by just about every Liberal leader, including Tony Abbott. Moving on, um, this is a bit of a heavy one. Do you, you view the post-global financial crisis resurgence of fiscal economics as representing a need for a new Australian settlement? Uh, well, I'm not sure about that, but uh, just recently the US uh, Federal Reserve said that it's going to continue pumping money into the US economy, $85 billion a month. What that's doing is it's um, 
designed to stimulate economic growth, but these can't be long-term solutions. Uh, if printing money was a long-term solution, we wouldn't have to do anything else, just fire up the printing machines. So, um, yes, the US economy does need some stimulation, but what it means is that the Australian dollar is actually rising against the US dollar because um, uh, interest rates are so low in the United States, um, and, and I think that that's a very bad development for our international competitiveness. We need a lower dollar. The higher the dollar, the less competitive we are, and we know that many of our industries, manufacturing in particular, are struggling under the weight of a high dollar. So that um, dollar rising, as it has done, will be bad for uh, Australia's competitiveness. So at some point, governments are going to need to move out of printing money as some sort of long-term response to um, the aftermath of the global financial crisis. I'm asked, uh, what's my proudest moment in politics? I think probably when I was um, in the chamber when Kevin Rudd made the apology to Indigenous Australians. This was a historic moment and uh, it overwhelmingly enjoyed uh, bipartisan support. Uh, I think we'll never look back and I think we'll never treat uh, Aboriginal people quite the same and quite as shamefully as we have in the past as a result of that apology and the bipartisan support that it enjoyed. Another great moment for me was to get a phone call from Julia Gillard uh, saying, Emma, I'd like you to be Australia's Minister for Trade. I did cry, I admit that. It was a fantastic moment for me and it's given me an opportunity that I'll cherish for the rest of my life. Uh, I'm asked, am I a realist or an idealist? I'm an idealist. Uh, I've uh, always said to young people, hold on tight to your dreams. That's another song and I won't sing it, but uh, it's really important to maintain your ideals uh, in implementing uh, your views, uh, your heartfelt passions. Of course, we need to get them through Parliament. We need to get them uh, accepted in the real world, but that doesn't mean uh, abandoning your ideals and so for all of the younger ones among you who are watching please do hold on tight to your dreams look for pragmatic ways of getting uh, good things achieved but don't ever abandon your ideals uh, I'm also asked um, is it alright in my 40s to really really hate the Abbott government and another question what do I expect from the new Abbott government this is my view um, the Australian people have elected the Abbott government and we need to respect the fact that a majority of Australians did uh, elect the Abbott government. So we should give the Abbott government a fair go. Uh, I don't believe that the Labor government and in particular the Gillard government got a fair go uh, from the Abbott opposition. But that's now history and our country will be better for having a constructive opposition that allows the passage of legislation that is in the national interest, not opposing for opposing sake, but where there are core Labor values at stake, whether it be an emissions trading scheme or whether it be uh, protecting the vulnerable uh, or, or ensuring that people get a decent um, set of rights at work, then of course we must prosecute those Labor values and we must oppose any legislation that tears away at core Labor values, but the, we do need to respect the will of the Australian people. Uh, we are in a democracy and they have uh, given their view and their view is that they want an Abbott government, so let's give the Abbott government a go. 
Uh, hate is a very big word and a very uh, extreme word. I don't hate anyone and I don't think anyone should hate Tony Abbott or anyone else. I'm asked, um, do you think that replacement senators should be elected by the people or appointed by the party? Uh, I think they should be appointed by the party. Uh, we had a, an incredible situation back in the 1970s that led to the dismissal of the Whitlam government where uh, the Bjorki-Peterson government did not replace a, a retiring Labor senator with a Labor senator and that changed the balance of power in the Senate. That was a shocking development for democracy. But senators do retire. You see, they um, have six-year terms and so it's not unusual for senators to retire. To have an entire state going into an election for one senator, uh, I think it's probably taking democracy a little bit too far. They get to um, elect senators based on party affiliation or as independent senators uh, every three years. And uh, if one member of that party can no longer be a senator, I think should be replaced. That person should be replaced with another member of that party. Moving right along now, um, this question, and there's a few like this, can the media be fixed? The press gallery can't do policies. Uh, and that says that they're partisan instead of experts on economics and uh, climate change. I think there is a real issue here uh, compared with 20 years ago and it's driven as much by technology as anything else. We always hear discussions about the 24-hour media cycle. It is a reality. In the olden days, uh, the print media used to set the um, news of the day and then the radio uh, programs in the morning and the television news that night would tend to follow what happened in the print media. Therefore, there was only usually one big story per day. Nowadays, in the so-called 24-hour media cycle, there's so much competition, not only within the mainstream media, but from all sorts of media sources, including on Facebook, on Twitter, on podcasts, that um, people are desperate to churn over and get new stories. Now, that means a superficiality. It just means that... Um, uh, any story will do, put it up for an hour, take it down, put up another story. And that means that we've lost most of our specialists, whether they be specialists in economics, in climate change, in uh, defence policy, in um, social policy. And so most of our journalists, not all, but most are generalists. And that leads to a superficiality. And what's the default position when you can't be an expert on anything? Talk about opinion polls. Talk about politics. Don't talk about policy because there's not enough time to learn about it. Uh, and I think that is a real issue. I hope through the processes of technological change that improves for the better. That is that we don't uh, persist with this so-called 24-hour media cycle and feeding the beast of uh, political parties feeding out bits and pieces and people leaking all the time. Uh, no wonder the general public uh, has uh, even greater cynicism about politics than they did so perhaps two decades ago uh, when that sort of behaviour occurs. So um, we don't know where all this is going. We don't know where media is going. The very fact that I'm talking to you on a podcast for the first time uh, indicates that anyone can do it. If I can do it, anyone can do it. And it just means that there are a lot more voices. Uh, that's a good thing. It's becoming atomised, but it also means that we are losing content. We are losing real policy discussions and discussions about values. Hopefully this podcast and others that you see are helping to fill that void. Now, um, I'm asked uh, 
uh, a question about public funding uh, to the private sector and welfare for the rich. Uh, are the LNP recklessly funding the wealthy? There is an issue here, and that is uh, the coalition has argued that Labor has, has spent too much and there's not a revenue problem. In fact, revenues um, are under enormous pressure, and that's why you see Colin Barnett's uh, Western Australian government having its ratings downgraded because it's taken a hit on the revenue side. So did uh, the Gillard Labor government take a hit on the revenue side. But the last thing you should do when there's pressure on revenue is spend more money uh, up the income scale. And that's what the coalition uh, is tending to do. I mean, they promised a gold-plated, diamond-encrusted paid parental leave scheme. They promised to remove the means testing of the private health insurance rebate. Uh, they were very critical of Labor for means testing the baby bonus. Indeed, uh, when Labor reduced the baby bonus for second and subsequent children, it was likened by the coalitionists uh, to China's one-child policy. Uh, so the history has been that it's been Labor that's been pruning um, transfer payments, income payments up the income scale and coalition governments that have been introducing them or promising to reintroduce them. And that we really can't afford. Uh, if we're going to have a great education revolution, if we're going to have a national disability insurance scheme, if we're going to keep taxes at a reasonable level, then we can't then also fit uh, very expensive pay parental leave schemes targeted towards the very highest incomes and the reintroduction of private health insurance rebates for the wealthiest people in this country. I'm now asked, uh, in your time in politics, what's the funniest moment that's happened in question time? Well, it, it actually is a moment that occurred at about 2am, uh, one morning, the last uh, sitting day of Parliament usually goes well into the night and I've been uh, around when it's gone and we've uh, ushered in the dawn still being waiting for messages to come back from the Senate. One of my colleagues who's now not in Parliament but should still remain nameless uh, at 2am uh, was in ready to speak but uh, uh, speakers had um, come in before and so he was waiting uh, in his queue and we were watching on the monitor from the uh, a Chief Opposition Whip's office, uh, and then uh, our colleague, this MP, uh, started to sort of slip slightly out of sight, and then he would straighten himself and slip out of sight. And we had, there were about 20 of us by this time, watching him slip out of sight as he found it very hard <laughs> to stay awake. And finally, the moment came where he completely fell over, uh, fell asleep, and there was a vacant um, uh, uh, seat there uh, uh, under his name and of course I'm not sure whether the Speaker actually called him because I doubt that the Speaker could see that he was still in the chamber. Well look, uh, I've tried to answer a number of your questions. Um, I've enjoyed this, our first opportunity. We'll no doubt um, get better and richer with time. Uh, we may spend a little bit more time in trying to answer questions in the future, we may actually identify themes that, um, you know, around which people could submit their questions. But this is an experiment. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks very much.